Father in heaven, as we come to your word, I pray that you would uh, grant us to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, that we may know our need of forgiveness, that you would enable us to see the exceeding righteousness of salvation, that we may never trust in ourselves. God, that you would enable us to see the exceeding glory of Christ that we may trust in him alone. Father, that we would see the exceeding beautiness of holiness, that we may hunger and thirst for it. That we may see the exceeding wonder of grace, that our gratitude and praise would know no end. God, please do that. Even as we read, even as we think upon your word, this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Genesis in chapter 6. I want to read this whole chapter. I initially put this whole chapter to be read as uh, listed in the bulletin this morning. Then I, 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 I asked Betty to, to just do it verse 5 through verse 22 since nobody really understands the first four verses. And uh, so I was just going to skip over them, but I thought I'd read them anyway. And um, so we'll read this whole chapter, Genesis and chapter 6. Hear the word of God. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Then the uh, Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts in his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was very sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and God had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and the the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive, and take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. 
and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Now we've been speaking of covenant because, as we've said, that is how God speaks to those who fear him as friend to friend. Covenant being God's plan, God's secret counsel, if you will, secret in the sense that it is known to those. He shares it with those. He refers to his friend. He shares to those as friend would speak to friend. He shares this with those who who fear him. And so we've, we've spoken of covenant as that which is a bond often in blood, meaning that it unites parties together. And it's a solemn union, meaning that it isn't broken easily. In fact, it can only be broken by the death of the other. In fact, if one breaks that agreement, they die. Thus, covenant is a binding agreement upon parties. And it's sovereignly, we said, administered. That is, in this case, we see there's one who is a great king, who's the king, God, who makes covenant with creation, makes covenant with people. He initiates it. It's his deal. There's no negotiation. He lays it out. And God condescends to, to communicate to us in this way of covenant because in the days of, 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 of creation, if you will, afterwards, in the days of Moses most especially, it was understood this covenant is a way that human beings related to one another as well. So it was a common form. It would be sort of like if God condescended to use something of our day, like a contract, to say, well, this is how I relate to you. But, but this is different than just a legal contract, different than just a business deal, if you will. This is something that binds relationship. This is something that's governed by love and justice and mercy and grace. And so we see all of that in these various covenants. Now, what we'll see as we work our way through the scripture, as we consider various covenants that God has made, is that they, in some sense, progress, or some sense, they're added to. You say, oh yes, it resembles the last one, it resembles this one, it's consistent with that one, but now I see this new wrinkle that God is revealing to us about himself and about our lives. And so in each situation, as appropriate, God lays this new kind of thing on us so that we can see him and understand him and know him. We'll see that in this covenant with Noah as well. Now remember, and we began with this notion of a covenant of creation, wherein the parties to the creation where God is the creator, who is the king, the sovereign over all of this, and as the one who made this covenant, as the one who entered into this binding agreement with creation, the one who made it, this one God, uh, is the creator. Thus he's the author, thus he has authority, thus he defines all the relationships that is in this covenant. And so he will say that the sun rules the day and the moon rules the night and the fish are in the sea and the birds are in the air and animals are on the land. And, and, and then he creates human beings in his image. And in his image he sets human beings above the creation, if you will, to govern it under God. Thus, human beings are to fill it a stipulation of this covenant, a, a, a responsibility of human beings, if you will, in covenant with God. He says, if you're going to be in covenant with me, I want you to fill the earth. And so you're to be, as the scripture puts it, fruitful and multiply, and that in the context of marriage. So God establishes marriage, and out of marriage come children, and thus we're able to then fulfill this mandate of being fruitful and multiplying. He tells Adam that he's to work the garden, that he's to have dominion over the land. And so having dominion over the land, meaning that he's to work it. He's to subdue it. 
That's what he does. And they're to rest. As God has rested, they're to rest. So there's this rhythm of working six days, resting one. And, and that rest is a spiritual rest as well as a physical rest. In fact, the physical rest comes from the spiritual rest. That is, the physical rest and the emotional rest come from the very fact that we acknowledge God, that he's the one who's made us and we live under him. And he's good and he provides all that we need. Knowing that brings peace. It brings great rest. And so one day in seven, they were to set a day aside so that they would know this rest, think upon God and be at, if you will, rest, cease from their labors and rest. All of that. And then that very specific stipulation that we know that they were to live in perfect obedience to God. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, they broke that. They did not live in obedience to God. They ate from the tree. In so doing, remember the evil one, the serpent was cursed. And the effects of that sin of Adam fell to Adam and even then everyone else. See, in the context of this covenant, when there's one who stands for us all in the covenant, one with whom God makes this covenant, he made it with Adam essentially, what we call this covenant of works. When Adam sinned, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 5, we all sinned. The whole human race sinned in him, with him, if you will. He represented us all. In the same way, when our Congress person votes, we vote. That person represents us. So, so Adam represented us when he voted, when he sinned, all of us in him. And so the effects of his decision, the effects of his sin, fall to us as well. We'll see that. But we realize that in the midst of that sin, still, the image of God was in human beings, broken, but still there. So there were still these stipulations that they needed to observe, these regulations, these responsibilities to, to marry and fill the earth and all of that, to work and to rest. But yet all of that was affected. So when, when God comes to the woman who has sinned, still she's to have children, still she's to marry, but, but we see the difficulties in that calling for her of marriage and children. And for the man, he still is to work, but, but, but we see the difficulties now that they'll be in work. In fact, they're kicked out of the garden. They can't come in because there's the tree of life. And so God in his grace, is that if you eat of the tree of life, you remain in the condition which you're in now forever. And yet he has something else in store, something else in mind. And so he, he, he removes them from the garden so no longer they're in this immediate presence of God. To live that out in the perfection of what life would have been had they not eaten and they obeyed and thus could eat of the tree of life. So here they are. And this sin now in them. But in the midst of all of this, God has sown his hand of grace. Uh, first, he didn't just kill them on the spot. He killed an animal and covered their nakedness. Uh, but more than that, Still, he said, you'll live. Still, there'll be marriage. Still, there'll be children. Still, there'll be work. Still, there'll be rest. All of that, it'll be different, affected by this, this sin. But he said, I, I won't let things simply go. I'll, I'll put an enmity, a hostility between the, the seed of this woman and this serpent so that, so that all human beings afterwards, after, after these, won't simply be sucked into this evil one. But there'll be some that there'll be this hostility between, and there will be one in particular who will come from the seed of the woman, and he'll crush the head of the serpent. So you're left with that. And then we begin to wonder now, what, what comes next? 
Well, what's going to happen in the midst of the world that God has made and yet in the midst of the world where sin now is present and death is there and, and all of that? What's going to happen now in the context of this world? Well, we don't have time, but if we, what if we'd been able to read from Genesis 3, read chapter 4 and 5, we read chapter 6, but, but what we see is there, 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 still, there seems to be this division of humanity. There's some that seems to be, to be following after God and, and some not. So we, some, we see some uh, living out faithful to God and some living out not faithful to God and all the ramifications of both of those. And now we see this indictment, if you will, upon all of humanity that we read here in verse 5 of, of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, he lays it out on how evil everything is. I mentioned as I began reading that the verse four verses are kind of difficult to know who these sons of God are and these daughters of men. There's various theories about that, some which makes more sense than others and fit the context better perhaps than others. But, but the point is that whoever that is, there's tremendous wickedness that's all contrary to how God desired it to be. And so that in the mind of Moses as he's laying this out thus in the mind of God as well is saying to us this is how evil everything was. If we knew who these people were and we have a sense perhaps of who they are if we knew who these people were uh, we'd be aghast. It would be repulsive to us what was happening there. And so God says at that point about human beings his days shall be 120 years. Now that doesn't mean that people are not going to live long anymore, only 120 years. Because if we read after this, we'll find that some lived quite longer still than 120 years. But that, if you take that from that point to when the flood came, it was 120 years. He says, this is going to be it. I'm going to judge the world. It's only going to be 120 years. And the judgment will come. And he lays this out of the evil that's there. And, and we read it about the thoughts and inclinations of, of the hearts of human beings. Only evil continually. Now, I, I juxtapose that with what I read earlier before our time of confession. When Jesus mentioned the days of Noah. And you know, when Jesus mentions the days of Noah, and we'll come back to this later. But when Jesus mentions the days of Noah, it, it, it doesn't sound so bad, does it? He says, as were the days of Noah, this is Matthew 24, verse 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and so forth. You get the sense that life was just going on. So much so that even the evil they were doing seemed normal. It seemed fine. It seemed like, oh, this is fine that these sons of God are marrying these daughters of men, whoever they happen to be. Some think the sons of God are the seed of the woman that is the righteous seed, and, and the sons of, 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 of men are, are, are the seeds of, of, of the serpent, if you will, human beings that come from the line of Cain, for instance, and not the seed of righteousness if you others think that there's this sort of angelic demon thing going on with humanity however that might work but whatever it is you see uh, that seemed normal to them and it shouldn't have in the eyes of God there was an evil thing it was not to be 
Does that remind you of any other time in history? Like now, perhaps? Where evil is such, so pervasive, things contrary to the way God would desire them to be, that just seem normal. generation even or two ago it would have not seemed normal to turn on the television and see a man and a woman living together but not being married or a man and a woman living together not married with children. It just wouldn't have been. No one thinks of it today do we? That's just one. That's an easy one to pick on. There are others we could certainly pick on. It's just true. Just going along. Um, Paul picks this up as he writes to the church in Rome about this sinfulness. In Romans chapter 3, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see. And all of those, by the way, are quotes from Old Testament. Paul isn't, you know, he could have just been given that by God. And it still would have been just as inspired, just as God breathed. But, but, but these, are, these are just common verses. These are things people go, oh yes, of course, that's the way human beings are. We see it coming very quickly. I mean, if you think about this, I don't know how much time we could add up the generations and so forth. But that might not always be helpful or, or even perfectly accurate. Going from chapter 1 to chapter 6 and so forth. There are gaps in some of those generational lists and so forth that we have. But, but, but still, it wasn't that long. Just five chapters. And we find actually just a couple because it was pretty cool till three. And then we have chapters four and five. And all of a sudden, here we are. God's saying, oh, this grieves me. Now, that doesn't mean God says, oh, I made a big mistake. How silly was this to create these people? It, it just simply shows something about the heart of God. And his heart can be grieved. When we sin against him, it isn't as if he's just sitting there cool and calmly saying, oh, that's no big deal. Yes, it is. There's something. And, and so how do we describe that? Well, we use human language to describe God. It's not always accurate perfectly, but we don't know what else to say. We simply can't say God didn't really care. He didn't mind. It was no big deal. He was just going to wipe everybody off the face of the earth, and that was that. So we describe this in human language to say that he was grieved. We know what that means. We get a sense of that the very heart of God. God is complex. So there's more than grief going on here, but there's at least that in who he is. And so we get that as we, as we read. Okay, that makes sense. God's just not sort of some sort of force, objective force. He's not just some, some sort, of, sort of machine. He's, 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 he's a person, as we understand persons. He's grieved by these things. It was not a pleasant moment. He knew it was coming. He's God. It's part of his plan. He knew what would happen. He's God. He knew how he'd redeem it and make all well. He's God. But still at that moment, he was grieved. And so he says, what he had every right to say, which is, I'm going to destroy things. Um, I'm going to destroy things. 
And so he describes it, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'll destroy the earth. And so he does all of that. Now, it probably isn't a more well-known um, event in the Bible than the story of Noah. Nobody knows most who aren't in the church don't know what it means, but, but, but it's always surprising to me when you go into a, a, um, a, uh, a, a store, a baby store, and there's all these little mobiles with, like, Noah's Ark. And I'm going, think, cool, you're going to hang that over your child's bed. What are you saying? You're saying, if you don't obey, God will destroy you. <laughs> now, that's not a bad message. But, you know, that's not what most people are thinking when they're dangling giraffes from their kid's crib. Um, it isn't about warm, fuzzy, be nice to animal week. You could do that. It's good to be nice to animals and all that. But that's not what this, this has nothing to do about that. I can't tell you how many vacation Bible school curricula exist about Noah's Ark. And the point is, be nice to your animals. Oh, that's a nice thing. You know, teach your kids. Don't, you know, do bad things to your cat. But... That's not the point of this. Something deep here. Something solemn here. So it must have come to as good news to Noah when God said, make for yourself an ark. Okay. Ah, and so that's the means by which God would save his family. Again, I, I'm not going to go into all the discussions about, about the, whether this is a universal flood or a local flood or whether this is feasible or not, this boat would float or, or how much water would have had to come or uh, how did the animals get there. By the way, they had 120 years to migrate, so uh, I suppose that's a bit of a time to get everybody all assembled. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, but suffice it to say that as you read through the rest of Scripture, you find two things. One is... This event is always, always thought to be real, considered to be real, spoken of as real and universal. And second of, secondly, that Noah is always spoken of as a real man who did a real thing at a real point in time as described by these chapters. And he is described that way, not the least of which by our Lord Jesus. And so you get the sense that this is real. So here we come. Uh, what do we say? God makes a covenant. That's what we're after this morning. God makes a covenant with um, Noah, verse 18. After saying that he's going to destroy everything, except you're going to have this ark, he says, but I will establish my covenant. I'm going to bind myself with you and you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark. So God's saying, I'm going to make these promises to you. I will, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all the flesh and so forth and so on. So God's making a covenant. And so we see it again. We see he's binding. And when he uses this expression, establish my covenant with you, that gets a sense that it isn't something brand, brand new. 
to establish it, to confirm it, to verify it, to do that which is consistent with my covenant. I'm reiterating my covenant with you. And that's why we were able, when we thought of creation, to speak of it in terms of covenant, because there this covenant was first made, now being established, continuing on through Noah. And we say that in part because of the language, but also because that which is part of this covenant is also part of the first covenant of creation. For instance, if you turn over to, to, to uh, chapter 9, we realize that um, um, some of the same features are in this covenant that were in the covenant of creation. Like his family is to be, still continue to be fruitful and multiply and to um, uh, um, fill the earth. Chapter 9, verse 1. And then still there'll be a dominion of man over creation. Verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and all of that. And so you get the same kind of thing. So they're still marrying, they're still children, they're still work, they're still dominion. Interestingly, the name Noah means rest. It's not the same word as used in those opening chapters of Genesis, but same meaning of word. His dad named him rest because he's going to bring rest to the land. And so we get the same kinds of features there. So, so again, this isn't utterly different. It's consistent somehow. We want to find that consistency with, with that first covenant. It, it moves it along. It, it verifies it. It confirms it. He said, I told the truth then. I'm telling truth now. You can trust me, which is really why God enters into these covenants and why we see them so that we can trust him better. So I will establish my covenant with you and you're going to come into the ark. I'm going to, I'm going to save you. Now the question is, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about us? What do we learn about life? by way of this by way of this covenant well first we see there's a sense of particularity here that is God is rather particular (laughs) he picks Noah now why does he pick Noah Why, why him rather than everyone else well it says in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man and blameless in his generation and that he walked with God. Now we have to be careful here because if we begin there we we may well misunderstand Moses' point because there's a verse 8 that goes ahead of that and it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and then describes Noah. Now it seems that Moses, being Moses, is under the inspiration of God, is laying this out in a way that we're to take note of. First favor, then righteousness. First favor, then blamelessness. First favor, then walk with God. Not the other way around. It's very easy for us because we think this way, though we shouldn't, but we think this way, that he found favor in the eyes of God because he was righteous and blameless in his generation. We say, of course, God looked around the earth. This is how the movies put it. God looks around the earth and says, is there anybody out there righteous? Oh, yeah, there's Noah. He's a good guy. I'll take him and start over with him. But that isn't the point at all. See, this idea of finding favor, it's the same word that we would translate in the King James, in the New King James, it does translate it this way, as grace. He found grace. God gave him grace. Grace means favor that's not merited, favor that's not earned. And so you see, when God's grace comes like this, his special grace, when his grace comes, it transforms, enabling us to walk with him. It isn't the opposite, is it? It's never been the opposite since Adam. Adam lost all of that, you see. And so ever since then, there hasn't been any that's been able to walk with God, even Enoch, although it wasn't described this way in previous, um, in chapter 4 of 
of Genesis. It wasn't described that way. But, 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 but how could Enoch walk with God? How could any walk with God? See, I think the reason that, that, that Moses lays out the, the wickedness of human beings is so we don't misunderstand that. The, the description of, 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 of what Moses gives on the thoughts and inclinations of the heart being evil continually of all of humanity, we're shocked by Noah. How could that be? How can anybody slide through? How can anybody, how could one guy out of this whole creation of human beings, out of this whole population of human beings, how could this one guy escape what no one else could seem to have escaped? Have you ever asked that question about yourself? And it's easy for us to talk about unbelievers and it's easy for us to talk about all the world and all of that. But have you ever asked yourself the question, how did I escape any of that? Why do I believe? Isn't that a head scratcher? You think, I'm no different than they are. In fact, you probably know people nicer than you who aren't Christians. And you, you wonder, how did I escape that? The Bible is shocking. We're going to be shocked when we come to Abraham. Why him all of a sudden? Why Noah all of a sudden? Well, yes, he was righteous and blameless in his generation, but, but why? What was so unique about him that enabled him to be that? Well, I think we have the cue right here. He says, listen, don't get confused. Everybody was depraved. But God's grace came to one. Now, there's a reason God's grace had to come to one not only because of the depravity, it couldn't happen any other way, but because of the fact that God had made a promise. We'll see that. And he needed one. <laughs> he couldn't destroy the earth. That would have broken his previous covenant. And, and so here, Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. And you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, if you want to pray to God for fairness, I'm not coming to your prayer group. All right? That's not a prayer. I pray. I, I haven't asked for fairness. I ask for grace. Everybody but Noah and his family got what they deserved. They had no other appeal. They couldn't say, well, you're nicer to Noah than to me. And he said, well, did you get what you deserved? Yeah. Moses is the, I mean, Noah is the one that should have been scratching his head, going, wow, you mean I get the ark? I don't know what an ark is, but yeah, I get that? You know? Okay. Thanks. So you have this sense there of this particularity because of the devastation of sin and how it pervades everything in us. So much so that it wasn't long until there wasn't anybody except this one. And this one says God showed his grace to him. We don't have it recorded, and so this is clearly speculation, but I, I wonder if there weren't times when, when Noah was just kind of floating along, doing whatever one does in an ark with those, those animals. <laughs> I suppose he was busy. But I, I suppose more than once he looked out and I don't know what the scene was when people were drowning. But to think of himself in the ark and wondering why. 
But there he was. And looking at his children, saying, thank you. You see, we don't have any, anything said about them. We don't, we don't really know about them in terms of their walk with God or any of that, or whether they just came along for the ride because, you know, you needed somebody else to keep this world going. Noah couldn't have done it by himself. We had a scene with Adam and animals, and that didn't work. And so, you remember, so Eve had to come. So he, there needed to be others in order to make all of this population happen again. But don't you wonder about that, the particularity of God's covenant. That's what we would refer to as a covenant of grace. His promise to save. But how can any be saved without his special grace coming to them? We see his family here. We'll talk about that in future sermons, just about the whole family relationship here. But, but just to make note of, of the importance of all of that. But what we see here is that in the midst of this covenant, from this covenant, is a preservation. You get that sense that it's, it's one that, that, that will result in the earth being preserved. I mean, that was the, the surprising thing at the end of Genesis chapter 3. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, you sort of figured, well, this will be a short book. Because, boom, God said, if you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. So it was a bit surprising then that they didn't. And then God killed an animal. We wonder, what does that mean exactly? Something died, but they didn't. And and here we are, moving along. We see the impact of this sin. But but that was surprising. And then then it's not so surprising to see the, the, the earth go the way that it did, just and the world go the way that it did, just because of the sin that was there. But then Noah is surprising here. And now he says, I'm going to preserve the, the earth. Notice how he puts it in chapter 8, verse 21. He says, when the Lord smelled, this was uh, Noah had built an altar, smelled the pleasing aroma. That's a Hebrew idiom, by the way. Just one of those little sayings that you say that uh, means that God liked it. It was pleasing to him. It wasn't that he was sitting up there going, ah, that's nice. Well, he was, but not in that way. The Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the grounds because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So he says, okay, the world's going to continue on. And you go, huh, wow. It is. So you get this sense of preserving. Uh, So much so that he says, I want you to preserve most especially human beings. Don't kill each other off. Don't let animals kill human beings. If an animal kills a human being, kill that animal. If a human being is one who kills other human beings, kill them. Take their life. Don't let that happen. Life is sacred. There's something about life. There's something about human life. Human life needs to be here. We're going to maintain, we're going to preserve human life. So don't, be, don't, don't allow anything to take human life indiscriminately like that. Oh, there's justice and all of that and wars and all of that that God will call because of evil and judgment and so forth. But he said, no, don't take this into your own hands. And so he lays that out as well. So he's going to preserve. So you get this sense, and we live in it, of what I mentioned during our offering time, of this sense of common grace. No one deserved to live at this time. 
God could have killed everyone and, and been just, but yet somehow there's a certain grace that doesn't transform lives and hearts, but a certain grace that God gives. Uh, we see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus um, speaks of it. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43 says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. When I was a kid, I used to read that and think that, you know, good things happen and bad things happen because for a nine-year-old boy in the summer, sun was good, rain was bad. (laughs) But I met a farmer. He said, no, 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 it's not quite like that. So God, Jesus is simply saying that even to his enemies, even those on his, he, he, he gives a certain grace to. And we see that in the course of life. Um, Louis Burkhoff, I don't think I've ever read Burkhoff to you before. This is one of those books that seminarians buy and, and uh, you can tell it's old and musty, all that. But um, it's a systematic theology book. I once said I would never read out of this to anyone. I should never say never. But Tyler had me read some things out of Burkhoff last week for his, one of his classes, and it inspired me. And he says, the question arises, how can we explain the comparatively orderly life in the world, seeing that the whole world lies under the curse of sin? How is it that the earth yields precious fruit in rich abundance and does not simply bring forth thorns and thistles? How can we account for it that sinful man still retains some knowledge of God of natural things and of the difference between good and evil and shows some regard for virtue and for good outward behavior? What explanation can be given for the special gifts and talents with which the natural man is endowed and the development of science and art by those who are utterly devoid of the new life that's in Christ Jesus? How can we explain the religious aspirations of men everywhere, even those who did not come in touch with the Christian religion? How can the unregenerate, that is, those who aren't born again, who don't have faith in Christ. How can the unregenerate still speak the truth, do good to others, and lead outwardly virtuous lives? I mean, that happens. We see it all the time. We see unbelievers do what appear to be, and what are, in some measure, good things. Help the poor. Do, come up with great discoveries. Work really hard for others. All that sort of thing. How does that happen in a world of depraved people? Well, it's because of God's grace. It doesn't transform them to make them believe, enable them to believe, but, but it's still grace. And so Burkhoff, in a helpful way, I think, describes it like this. He says there's, there's two aspects here of this common grace. These general operations of the Holy Spirit, whereby he, the Holy Spirit, without renewing the heart, exercises a moral influence on man through his general or special revelation, that is, that sin is restrained, order is maintained in social life, and civil righteousness is promoted. Those general blessings, such as rain, sunshine, food, drink, clothing, and shelter with God imparts to all men indiscriminately, where and in what measure, it seems good to him. God just does that. And we see that in this verse in, in Matthew. We see it throughout the Psalms where God is good to his creation. and We see that and people know that. We've seen this common grace in a variety of ways. I suspect that our founding fathers, many of them were endued with a tremendous common grace. We don't have to make them Christians somewhere, but not all. And 
Yet they had an understanding of depravity, so they said we should be a, a nation of law, not men. That there should be checks and balances. They understood that. That's a certain measure of common grace. They understood the, how, how to put all of that together, and so we see that common grace. We see common grace in many even in our day. We know that burning a Quran is not such a smart thing. Whereas, <laughs> others who may be endowed with special grace may not see that. And so here we have common grace in the midst of the world. We see it. We see it happening all the time. Unbelievers, depraved people, being very nice. Why? Because God says, I'm going to preserve the earth. So I don't want people ripping it up. I don't want people killing each other all the time. Why? Because he made a promise. And that's the point. He made a promise in the covenant of creation. He made a promise in the covenant of works that says one is going to come from the seed of the woman and he will crush the head of the serpent. And so this world is going to continue on by the means I choose, my grace, until that happens. And that's happened. That very one has come. And so you see, God gives Noah a sign. He gives, a, he gives him this sign. It's a rainbow, which is an appropriate sign because he says, he's going to give you a rainbow to tell you I'm no longer going to ever destroy the earth by flood like this again. So he gives a rainbow. So, so, so we see rainbows. And what does that mean? Well, it's, a, it's rain, so it's, it makes us think of water, flood, rain, bow. The word bow in Hebrew meant a weapon what a bow was. It was a weapon. And he says, I'm going to put aside my weapon of rain to preserve the earth. So when we see a rainbow, we should realize God is faithful to his promises. One was to come to crush the head of the serpent. He's he's come. Now what does that mean now that we've seen a rainbow? And it, it means that God is still being patient with us. That's what Peter spoke to. We read that in our Responsive reading this morning from Second Peter in chapter 3, this, Peter writes, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up, in, up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the, in the last days with scoffing, follow their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's the attitude of our day, isn't it? Everything's fine. And where it isn't fine, we'll fix it. And if we can't fix it, we still don't have a category in our brain. Oh, there's some who's saying someday the world's going to blow up or whatever, but we don't really believe that. We're just living our lives. For they're deliberately overlooking this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So God says, listen, I've already shown you I can do this. I've already shown you judgment upon sin. I've already shown you that. But you've forgotten that. You've made little mobiles for your kids out of that. And you've, you can do that, by the way. It's cute and all that. It's fun. Animals are nice. Boats are great. But, he says, that's the deal. 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day, meaning God doesn't count time the same way we count time. It may seem like a long time to us, but you know, it really isn't to him. So don't get comfortable. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he says, you know, Realize he's just being patient toward you. We can debate for hours who you is. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So he's saying, listen, this world's going to continue until everyone who's going to come to repentance comes to repentance. And if it goes on another hour, it means that some are still to come to repentance. And God is going to be patient, and he's going to be patient till all come. And so if the world is going on, it means God is being patient. (coughs) Take advantage of his patience in the sense that it's a call to believe. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So then the question is, well, how should we live since all these things are thus to be dissolved? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Basically, we should live lives of holiness and godliness. Now, don't become complacent. Don't think, oh, it's never really going to happen. Things turn quickly, don't they, in life? This is September 12th, September 11th, 2001. Changed a lot, quickly. Things can change quickly. There's all these things that are just to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the day of the coming of the Lord? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise... We're waiting for new heavens and a new earth which result in which righteousness dwell. He's being patient. Let's pray. Father, we trust you. You've covenanted. You've given you a promise. And so, Father, we await your coming. And as we await your coming, we know there's still to come, some to come to repentance. So we pray that you would use us to bring this word to those who will repent and hasten the day of your coming. Father, for those who have yet to repent and come to faith, to realize The offer has an end to it someday. And so I pray that you would bring many now to repentance in these days. That as we've been praying that your word of God would spread rapidly and would be honored even as you've enabled us to honor it. So Father, be with us. Father, we thank you for those who know you and and, uh, are able to rest in your goodness. We pray for Melissa Foster that you would grant to her grace and rest as she recovers from another surgery. 
for Teresa Berry, God, as she grieves the loss of her husband, and for Isaac and Amanda and Lisa, that she would be with them in these days as well. And Father, we pray for those who you've called to go out from this place, various ones who, who minister, and uh, we pray uh, for Jeff and Rebecca Burgess with Campus Crusade for Christ, God, that you would bless their work, that many through them and the others who work with Crusade, many would come to repentance. Pray for Matt Podzis as he works with navigators and Corey as she helps him with that ministry and others with navigators that Father many through them would come to repentance as well. Pray for Scott and Jane. Good on Father that you would work in their ministry as well. That many in that country would come to faith and repentance. Father you're gracious to us. It's utterly amazing. Thank you for the common grace that you give to us so that our world and country is as civil as it is. And for the great things that have been discovered that are helpful to human beings. Father, most especially we thank you for the special grace that you've given to us that we may believe. We're as shocked as Noah that we escape judgment. Thank you for that. This we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind you of our Sunday school classes happening um, in about 15 minutes. I remind you too of our time together tonight, our sacred assembly. Please come 6.30 to come to come to pray. Please receive this as God's benediction.